You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Jacqueline Winspear is the author of the Maisie Dobbs series. Her latest novel is Among the Mad. Thank you for joining me, Jackie. Well, thank you. Thanks very much for having me. Jackie, you've set your novel in a really unusual time and place. Tell us what made you choose this time and place. In a way, it chose me. Uh, I've sort of told this story before, and uh, people always, I think, think perhaps that, uh, you know, is she making this up? But it... I was literally on my way to work and daydreaming in very busy traffic, you know, when you're stuck doing nothing. And the character just sort of walked into my head, so to speak. And what unfolded was essentially the first chapter of, uh, you know, as I'm sitting there, of, of what became my first novel, which is Maisie Dobbs. And uh, I've always referred to that as my moment of artistic grace. But, uh, you know, those moments don't happen in a vacuum. And I, I've always been really interested broadly speaking in that period of time from just before the start of the Great War, 1914 to 1918, right up to the end of rationing in Britain after the Second World War. But it's those between, you know, the Great War and between the wars that has really held my attention, really held my attention from childhood, in fact. Well, now, as you set to create a a novel and a mystery uh, set in these times, that seems a little bit easier said than done. So, um, talk about some of the research you did. To the the right. character walked into your head, yeah, and, so and you had, which yeah. is quite lovely. Yeah. But you got another thirty chapters or so chapters to go. Uh, sure, how did you set sure. that up? You know, s- some of the background was, you know, in terms of research, it was almost as if I was researching that book my entire life before that. Uh, to give you a bit of background, my grandfather was severely wounded in the Battle of the Somme in 1916. He was shell-shocked and gassed. Uh, before that, he had already been in, in a couple of major battles, and in between, you know, his battalion had been wiped out, and he was a, he'd been a stretcher-bearer, and so on. And it's not that that generation told their stories, because they didn't. They came home, put the medals away, and they got on with life. But even as a child, and he was an older grandfather, if you know what I mean, he married late. Um, I was aware of of his disabilities, let's say, his disabilities. I was aware that, for example, I mean, obviously the things that you can see, he, he, he walked with a bit of a limp. When he breathed, you could hear the rasping in his lungs. And I was also aware that his emotions were very close to the edge. I'd never seen him angry, I happen to say, I want to say that. But, for example, you know, he would... Uh, Whenever he would, he would just cry when he saw me, because the, he couldn't stop that emotion. My, here's my granddaughter, my little granddaughter. He would cry, and, and yet, you know, when there was a joke told, he, he was the one that was laughing the hardest. You know, those emotions when they're very close to the edge. Mm-hmm. So there was always that curiosity of, you know, what happened to Granddad, and then there was also the response, which is, he was wounded in the Great War. And I can pinpoint it that there was something about that word wound, the way that people said that he was wounded in the Great War and the intonation, he wasn't injured, he wasn't hurt, he was wounded. And it seemed to speak 
to something that went beyond the physical right to the very soul of a person and, and seemed to impact more than just him. So that started this curiosity, which by the time I got to being a teenager, you know, I was doing the war poets in school and then looking further in, just reading around what happened to ordinary people. You know, I'm not big on generals and, you know, and they march from so many degrees here to so many degrees there. What happened to ordinary people in that time? What happened to the boys that left the factories and, and the banks and the post offices and marched to war? And what happened to their families? And what happened to people after the war? That's what I became curious about. And then with each book, there's been very specific things that I researched. So specific, what I've done, I've, I've, got, I've visited the battlefields of the Somme and Ypres in uh, France and Flanders uh, three times. And it's uh, always very much, it's, it's a real personal pilgrimage as well as, you know, wanting to go, there are specific things I want to find out. But I've spent a lot of time at the Imperial War Museum in London, which is an extraordinary museum of uh, social history, in fact. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's not just, oh, well, you know, here's another gun. Um, they really try to give you a sense of what war means. And I've used the archives there on many occasions, and it's, it's a task I come to with a great deal of respect. So uh, what they do in the archive, I'm not just talking about books and papers, that they have many, 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 many collections of letters not just from famous people, but ordinary people. Wow, so that's interesting. It, How fascinating. You know, it really is. I, I can go on about this and bore people silly, so I have to watch it here. But, um, I mean, say that you found you were clearing out Great Uncle Edgar's, you know, rooms after he's passed away, and you find a collection of letters or, you know, from his fiancée during the war, or you find his diaries or something like that. Um, you know, people just leave them to the museum. And someone like me comes along, and I want to find out, for example, as I did with my third novel, Pardonable Lies, I, want, I specifically wanted to find out about the experience of aviators going into the, um, out to France, what it was like before they went, you know, what it was like out there and so on, and also what it, what it was like at a period of time, you know. so. I, you go there and you go through a computer, you know, they have everything on computer, all the different collections they have. Oh, that's nice. That's, that's pretty advanced for those kind of museums. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's a really great and extraordinary place. And so I, I looked up about six different, the, the records from six different people. And these, as I say, are not high-ranking famous people. They're just ordinary blokes that were out there. And... Then they come to my desk, you know, the archivist brings them to my desk and puts them there, and they're in a box, an archival box. And inside, you open it up, and there are the letters. Mm -hmm. And I realized pretty early on that often, I might be the first person reading those letters since the original recipient slipped the letter out of the envelope. Because when these letters come in, unless it's someone famous, they, the archivist can't read every single letter. They probably read a couple, they um, catalogue them, and they put them in the box and they put them away until someone like me comes along. And it's something you come to with such a respect, such a, it's very, it, it, it's almost heartbreaking sometimes, you know, and you, you're, and a lot of it is very mundane because people didn't, the men didn't want to worry the people at home. So it's, oh dear mum, 
hope dad's all right and I suppose you're still, still having trouble with Mrs. So-and-so down the road. Well, it's all very nice here, da-da-da-da, and then you see the census line, you know, and it's always from somewhere in France. They can't specifically give details, and although they did from their barracks before they went. You used a word back there, boys. Boys. That, that's an interesting perception because we see them in the battlefield and we know them as you knew your grandfather afterward as men, but they really were just boys going into battle, weren't they? And when they came back, they were in many ways probably still boys. There were um, men and boys, and there were many. There's actually a book co- um, called, oh gosh, what is it called? Um, I think it was called the Forgotten. No, not the Forgotten Soldiers. Uh, anyway, there's an, uh, there is a book all about the bo- boy soldiers of the first wo- of the Great War, uh, because many boys were only thirteen and fourteen, and they lied to go to war. And so here's what happened. And I, I, one of the things I do, I also listen to. They keep audio there of people's recollections of, about, you know, the 1970s. They realized that that generation of men and women were dying. They were passing away, and they thought, oh gosh, we've got to get, we've got to get their voices. Mm-hmm. And so they they probably sent students out to just interview anybody in this age range because anybody in a certain age range. They knew something about the war personally, you know, from losing someone or being there or whatever. And I always remember listening to this this one man, and he was telling how the story of how he uh, went to enlist in 1914, and um, the enlistment officer. And it's very simple then. I mean, it's nothing like you go through today. Although I understand today, they, there's things they ignore. And you know, what's your name, son? Okay, what, how old are you, son? Uh, I'm 16. Sorry, did you say 19? Oh, 19? You're 19, aren't you, sir? Yes, I'm 19, sir. Lovely. You're the right. You know, boom, and they're in. And also, one of the other things that they did um, with young, with boys from 13 and up who were young offenders, um, and they were in uh, remand home, what they call remand homes uh, at the time. Um, it was sort of like a precursor, you know, one of the prison, what we might call a juvenile place for juvenile delinquents or whatever. Um, they offered that if they went to war as soldiers, if they enlisted, then they their records would be clean. And you, it's heartbreaking. You see photographs of this this young lad. He's thirteen and going to war, and you look at his four years later when he, by which time he was um, uh, leading a battalion, because everyone Boy. else had died. <clears throat> You know, 16 years of age, and he looks like an old man. I mean, it just beggars belief. So, so it's very varied research. <laughs> <laughs> well, could you talk about <clears throat> one of the things that strikes me about um, books set in, in a post-war time is that um, they have a lot of relevance. They're, they're always relevant because there's always some war that has mm-hmm. just been fought. As you're writing these books in the 21st century, and we've got all the people from three different wars coming back, or four, or gosh, you can't lose track of it practically. Um, could you talk about um, <clears throat> how the stuff that you are evoking, that you're unearthing, and that you're writing about, how what's happening right now informs your vision of the history? You know, um, I, I was recently asked that question, you know, because a lot of people have said to me, it's uncanny the way these, you know, we're seeing this and we're seeing that and we're seeing these different phenomena. 
come to the fore because of the wars that we're facing at the moment. And asking, I was asked if I do that deliberately, you know. And and my answer is no. Actually, I don't. I don't. History does it all for me. I don't look to the present. I only look to history. Um, it's just. I think James Joyce said that history is a nightmare from which I'm trying to recover. <laughs> and you know, it 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 happens. It comes round again. Um, my book, Among the Mad. Uh, looks uh, one of the the, the so-called villain, and I'm, I try to avoid the the villain and victim because I think in every villain there is a victim. But the so-called villain, let's say, is someone suffering from deep, deep, deep shell shock, and someone who has been really disenfranchised by society. Um, one of the things that happened in that war, for example, I'm going to tie it into something that's happening now, is that the government started to massage the numbers because they realized that that's, this was a, a fairly new phenomenon on this scale that came with trench warfare was this, um, this phenomenon that was referred to as shell shock, which covers a multitude of different war neuroses. And they realized that if those men were listed as wounded with a big W on their file and discharged as wounded, oh gosh, they're going to be eligible for a pension. So then they brought in this new rule that you could only get a pension if you were wounded. And of course, if you didn't look as though you were wounded. You weren't. You weren't. Mm -hmm. You know, so a lot of men were just, you know, they got them well enough in their minds to just shoot them up the trenches again. And it's interesting because I think it was a few months ago that I just happened to read of um, uh, that some doctors were becoming very concerned because they were being asked to massage their own numbers and they were being asked to uh, not list people as having PTSD when they clearly did. And, and you don't know how much fact there is, but it was, an, uh, let's say, an article from a very reliable source um, that, that literally showed some of the things that were happening that doctors were actually putting their foot down and saying, no, you know, when we see someone that is suffering from post-traumatic stress syndrome, that person, that's, that's, that's related to war. Now, you're writing mysteries mm. set in this time period. So talk about using the, the plot and the archetypes of the mystery to explore the world, this historical mm. world that you've researched. Mm. I think... Mystery is, a, is a, a fascinating tool with which to explore social phenomena. It represents that archetypal journey through chaos to resolution, or not, as the case may be. But in that journey, um, you know, it, it offers such a, a richness of exploration, and particularly when someone like myself, that what I like to look at or what fascinates me is going back to that comment earlier, what happens to ordinary people in extraordinary times? People that might not have committed a crime, might not have snapped, but they've been pushed, pushed, pushed by external forces, let's say. Um, Many, you know, some people might commit suicide, and there were just a, there were many suicides during and after the Great War. But there are those that, you know, it, 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 something happens to them and they snap, and therefore you have a crime. 
but also you see it's it offers the opportunity to almost let's say and this I know sounds very grand so I'm going to think my way through it almost develop a body of work where you're looking at a period of time and how um, and, and also following certain core characters through their journey mm-hmm. particularly for example my main character and her assistant who is shell-shocked mm-hmm. and um, and has nightmares as, and, as, as she, you know and she is has her own uh, trauma as well and how they're both move through that let's say not necessarily to come out without the the, the shock and the, without the nightmares but how they deal with it in everyday life and how they how they deal with it especially with their work does well, that answer your question yeah <laughs> now you mentioned too that this is the first this was the first generation of british women who were sent to war um yes they're the first generation of women in modern times to go to war anywhere um, I think the the nearest sort of, uh, I mean, there was a precedent, and it's very similar, kind of similar to the experience of um, the post-war experiences, similar to the post-war experience of women in the South after the after the Civil War. But um, just to th- you know, throw out some some numbers, for example, uh, in Britain, sixty to eighty thousand women went directly into war work, and that number's probably low. These numbers are really low. Um, and that meant they were um, nurses on the battlefield, they were code breakers, they were in military support roles, um, and so on and so forth. And, and there were women building aircraft, all those things, in the Great War. And in fact, it was just two years ago that this lady, she passed away in Britain, she was about 108 years old. And in her day, at the age of 18, she was what they refer to as a leading aircraftswoman, which meant that she personally tested not by flying, but running the tests on every single aircraft engine that left a fac- this given factory, which meant that at 18 she was responsible for the lives of the boys that flew those planes. You know, and, and she did what so many of them did, came home, put her you know, medals in a drawer, and she got on with her life. And they didn't really know what she had done until they've, after she died. But anyway, so there were those women. And then in addition to that, there were a phenomenal number of women. I mean, th- there are some reports that say it was about 450,000, 500,000, but it was well above that, who went into men's work to release men for the battlefield. I mean, literally, there are posters that were put out at the time. Women of Britain say, go. And, and you know, it's <laughs> encourage you. Know, is your best boy in uniform yet? You know, things like that. Uh, real, it was a real age of propaganda. I mean, just amazing posters. You'd think, gosh, where do they get these ideas from? But amazing in a terrible way. Um, so there was actually not a field of endeavor left untouched by a woman's hand. They did everything from driving the trains, driving the buses, mending the trains and buses. They worked in construction. They cleaned the chimneys. They worked in factories, on the land, ran the printing presses. I mean, every field of endeavor it was not uh, it was that's what women did and uh or they were you know someone like my grandmother 19 years of age she was working in the Woolwich arsenal um she was working with volatile explosives and she was partially blinded in an explosion which killed two of the girls working alongside her gosh and, and you know what 
I didn't even know that's why she couldn't see out of one eye. I thought she just had the family lazy eye, and it was only a few years ago when my mum said, no, 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 that happened in the... She, she was blown up in the war. And, you know, and, and yet those women earned a measure of independence because with that work came um, uh, money, came, you know, you got a salary. Munitions workers were paid very well. And um, also women started living away from home. Um, those were the days when you didn't leave your father's house until you married your husband. And you might go and live with your husband and his parents or, you know, your, uh, if you were lucky, you had a house on your own, depending on your station in life. And, you know, suddenly there's women like my grandmother living in uh, a hostel close to the arsenal so she could get to and from her 12-hour shifts very quickly. But when they had a day off, you know, the girls just used to go out together and, well, we can go into the pub. Who's going to stop us? You know, and you had women winning a certain independence, but, you know, at what cost? Now, tell us about the, the journey of Maisie Dobbs. She's born in a traffic jam in the oh, 21st yeah, century. Yeah, century. Yeah, yeah. Uh, as you created this character, um, could you talk about creating the other core characters of the series and mm -hmm. how you took them through changes and, and maybe how some of the subjects of the novels led them led your characters in directions right. you didn't expect the main character is Maisie Dobbs she's a psychologist and investigator uh, from very lowly beginnings and and Maisie the actual first book Maisie Dobbs has sort of the present story Maisie starting in business on her own um, and then she has this uh, this particular uh, case that harks back to the Great War but interspersed with it is her story um, of when she was uh, literally born into very lowly beginnings and went to work at a house. She was in domestic service. And her in innate intellect was discovered by her employer and one of her employer's friends. And it's the employer's friend, Dr. Morris Blanche, who becomes uh, really her mentor and guide throughout her life. And uh, he directs her education and so and so so on and so forth, and she goes to university. But she gives up university to answer the call, and she signs up for, she enlists for nursing service and goes to France. Um, very quickly, you know, she, she continues her education afterwards. She, does, she works for about a year in a, in a secure hospital, working with shell-shocked men, and then she continues her education. But that, a lot of that comes out through the novels. Mm -hmm. Um, her assistant is Billy Beale. He's uh, very much a Cockney lad. He's uh, married. He's got uh, three children uh, at the outset. And um, there's a connection because he remembers, when he meets Maisie, he remembers her as the nurse that helped save his life in the casualty clearing station. And um, Billy is very much one of those men that walks the street at night because he can't sleep. And he says, you know, I, I see the others out there and we all know who we are at the night when we're walking the, the streets. We all know who we, who we are. We've men who can't, who live with the nightmares. Um, so there's those three, there's Morris Blanche, there's Maisie, there's Billy Beale. And then there's s some other characters that I particularly like. There's Maisie's friend Priscilla, who is, is very much, a, she's very no nonsense is Priscilla. She's, you know, uh, when Maisie first meets her, she's sort of quite the uh, party-going, you know, debutante. Mm -hmm. You know, nothing mm -hmm. like a man in uniform to take you out on the town, darling, that sort. And 
tragically, she loses her three brothers in the war. She herself becomes an ambulance driver. She jo joins the first aid nursing yeomanry. And uh, she becomes an ambulance driver. And, and it, it leaves her with great scars. And she, uh, she also loses her parents in the flu epidemic. And flu and war, they tend to go together, don't they? <laughs> and um, she goes off to, to Biarritz, actually. A lot of people post-war went to hot places because there was that cold. In, uh, if you've been to war, they never left their bones. Mm. And, um, sh and she drank, tried to drink it away. And, but she's rescued by the love of a good man who is himself a veteran, and he's very much a pacifist and a writer. So we find that about, and she has three boys, and their middle names are the names of her brothers. <laughs> um, so, and there's the people that Maisie worked for, the, um, who are aristocrats. And um, those are the main characters, really. And they don't all pop up all the time, although you tend to see Billy in every book. As you ex have explored this time in, in your books, could you talk about uh, the, the various places that you've actually visited? I, I mean, uh, tell me about visiting the Somme. That must be really kind of intense. It, it was incredibly intense. I mean, I... I, I, I it's almost, it's almost hard to talk about it. I, I, I've actually put, got an essay about it on my website. Um, but let me just tell you about some of the experiences, you know, because the, the, to, to give, try and give a blanket, this is what it was like. It's, it's very hard. Um, but let me tell you about some of them. I stood in the very place that the men uh, who referred to as the Accrington Pals went over the top. Yeah, they come out, they was referred to as going over the top. You come out of the trench, the whistle blows, and off you go, boom, towards, towards the enemy. Uh, bayonets fixed. And they went on the first day of the Somme, 7.30 in the morning, the, the, uh, the whistle blew. They ran up, that's their job. They run off into the, the fog and the fog of war, let's say. And it didn't take long, just a couple of hours, and all the men from uh, the, from the Accrington Pals Regiment were killed. And I have stood in that place where they went over the top, and I've seen the, the battlefield cemetery there for, dedicated to them. And here's the thing, the Pals Regiment, here's a little bit of history, the Pals Regiments were set up before conscription, um, enlistment, you know, there's that initial rush to war, that mm -hmm. young men answer the call to war. And then it drops off when they start realizing, oh God, I could get killed doing this. <laughs> and the, you know, the, the first, um, the, every day the, the dead and the wounded and the missing were gazetted in the newspapers. And, um, and, they, and they dropped off. So the, uh, the great propaganda machine said, well, how are we gonna get people to sign up and enlist? And the idea was to set up what they referred to as the PALS regimen, which meant you joined up with your PALS. You know, so all the men from one village would join up together because they knew that a man actually wouldn't lay down his life for his country, but he would for his best mate alongside him. So it was, are you going to protect your village? Are you going to protect your, where you, you know, your, you and your father have worked for years? So you had the, you know, the whole men in one village signing, enlisting together and going to war together. That meant brothers, 
cousins because people didn't travel so much in those except when they were emigrating but they tend to stay closer to home than we do nowadays brothers cousins fathers and sons best friends people that you grew up with which meant that when you went over the top in one of those battles that's who you, you saw being killed uh, the town of Accrington lost almost all its men on uh, that whole town lost almost all its its men between perhaps the ages of 16 and 40 in in just a couple of hours the what was then Newfoundland which was part of the empire but not part of Canada um, the Dominion of Canada at that point um, lost almost all its men literally at, at the same time it uh, it was a contributory factor to Newfoundland eventually becoming part of the Dominion of Canada because it could not continue uh, without so, uh, lo having lost so many people and it's standing in those places and then realizing that the enemy were just over there and that all those men were lost to get a foot of land to move, be able to move forward. I mean, it's just, and that was what it was all about. How much land can we take? How much of the enemies, um, you know, how much of their territory can we take from them? And, and it was back a foot, forward a foot, back a foot, forward a foot. And then, in that same place, if I can describe this to you, if you can imagine sort of 17 odd miles of the Somme Valley, and you've got the sort of the tr their, tren their trenches and, and, and the, the British and Commonwealth and French trenches, you know, so the Allied trenches down here. And the whole idea is that there is the, the artillery barrage first, which is supposed to knock out the big guns on the other side. And then, you know, you're supposed to, they were supposed to wait three minutes and then all the whistles blew because they give out synchronized watches before the battle and everybody goes over the top at the same time. And what they tended to do, you know, you were basically buried where you fell and they reburied them after the war. But it's not, the battlefield cemeteries are not like, you know, Normandy where you just see hundreds and thousands of crosses. You can look up that valley and you will see you can identify exactly where each battlefield cemetery is because it actually follows the line of no man's land. And the battlefield cemeteries were designed by actually two people. I think it was uh, Edwin Lutyens had, uh, he, he designed the Cross of Sacrifice. I think I'm right there, I, I could be wrong. And when he designed the cemeteries, the battlefield cemeteries, he said, I want this to look like a battalion of troops marching through an English field. But what you can see, you can look up that valley and you just see the cross of sacrifice, one after the other after the other. And so it's those things, and going to somewhere like Newfoundland Park, which is where the, the men of, of, essentially of Newfoundland, but also other places in Canada, and, and a battalion of Scots as well, went over the top on that morning, uh, July 1st, 1916. And you can see the and then you imagine it, you see the front line trenches and then there's the second line trenches and then what they call the, um, uh, the feeder trenches and so on. And you can imagine these men going over the top and then the, the subsidiary trenches choked with the dead and dying and trying to get them out. And, and how terrible that must have been. Well. Beggar's belief. And so really to recount the experience, it's, it's, you have to look at almost the different experiences and what I have to do as a writer is to stand there and I've been to these places really early in the morning when there's no one there and the fog is just lifting and 
you ask the question, how would it be if? How might it be? And, um, you know, it, uh, uh, your emotions are very close to the edge all the time. Very close to the edge, I would say. Well, mine were. <laughs> it it uh, interested me that the way you described your, your villain, or, or sort of a villain, um, could you talk about creating um, villains, as it were, mm-hmm. e- in a manner that, that bestows their s- sympathy mm-hmm. uh, sympathy for them upon the reader without necessarily really liking somebody who's mm-hmm. doing, might be doing some pretty bad things? And my villains have done some pretty bad things. I, what, what I'm interested in is what, what made them who they are. What made them who they are? And for example, in Among the Mad, you have a man that's actually, he, he's trying to do some pretty horrible things. But he's a man, you know, right, you can, in the book, what I've done is to give a sense of what his childhood was like. Because, you know, how he was treated in childhood. And how this made him then into this, the, the young man that he became. And then, the man that actually went to war, and the man, because he was, he's a scientist, um, and he was involved with um, uh, weapons development as well. But also how he was, um, uh, le- and this is an oft, you know, abused word, but he, how he was abused at different steps of the way in his life. Um, and how he was pushed over the edge, if you will, by a series of events in his life. Ditto with the villain in my first novel, Maisie Dobbs. There's a scene, actually, where Maisie literally, you know, he's, he's a, a nutcase, you know, he's a crazy man, and she places her hand in the place where his heart would be, you know, and, and she wants to understand where is his heart, and and... I know you have a heart there. And so it's, it's finding the heart of the person, but also finding out what tipped them over the edge. And, you know, that is not to say we're, we're dealing with necessarily poor, maligned people here, but, you know, to have a certain empathy. You know, it doesn't mean people get away with murder, but it means perhaps we understand why they got to the place they're in. Which which interests me actually. That interests me. I think, you know, I don't think victim and villain is as cut and dried as you. You know, they're not necessarily in the dark cloak. I'll have his. You know, <laughs> I'll kill you, my man. You know, it's not like that. It's it's they're just like they're they're people that are just generally speaking. You know, some some bad things happen to them. Now, as <clears throat> as you move this series forward, tell us about uh, your forthcoming book. I can't say much about that at the moment, uh, but I will say this: it actually starts in the United States. Really? And um, I'll tell you a little bit about the inspiration for it. A, a grain of the little grain of inspiration, and that is um, a few years ago, actually 2005. Um, I read an article in um, actually it was in the Santa Barbara Independent. And the article was, in fact, a letter. They'd got a letter to the newspaper, and they just found it so fascinating, they, they printed it as an article. And the letter was from this gentleman in Britain who I've actually met now. 
And he is, uh, he's one of the, the people that runs tours of the battlefield, very, uh, just a, you know, um, let's say very specific tours, not just a whole bunch of people on a bus, you know. And he's uh, an ex-policeman, and I know a couple of ex-high-ranking uh, ex policemen that do that job, it's, it's really funny. But anyway, he, um, he's often called upon uh, to help identify uh, the remains of soldiers from the Great War. Now, just to give you an example of, of what that means, is that ever since the end of the Great War, men have been, I mean, the remains of men have been uncovered. Mm -hmm. Just recently, 200 Australians were found in a mass grave. A farmer could be uh, plowing his land, the land will fall in, and they realize it was a, a dugout. That, you know, and a dugout was it's almost like a house underground. Mm -hmm. And they'll find the remains of soldiers in there. Um, Another example, during the Battle of Passchendaele, uh, men were drowning in the mud. Now, when you think of mud, you think of something, oh, a couple of feet deep, you know, who can drown in that? The mud was actually 15 foot deep because of the years of uh, shelling and the rain and also the fact that originally before, uh, just as the war started, the King of Belgium had the land flooded. He, they, they broke the dikes to try and keep the, um, the Germans back so the land was really dreadful but what happened when men died men and horses they sunk down 15 20 feet which means 15 20 feet below the ground you've got the remains of probably around the area of Passchendaele probably people reckon it could be something like 40,000 men mm. and just recently there's because they're building some main roads there they've uh, which has been very controversial they've been digging up a lot of remains so people like this gentleman that he's asked to help identify the remains and and that means taking whatever was on the uh, the rem with the soldier so he had written about this the remains of this soldier and he was found um, in, his remains were found he was wearing a British uniform and he had with him various items personal belongings but he had his wallet with him which clearly said on it the central bank of Santa Barbara wow now David David couldn't they weren't able to um, extract what was inside the wallet efficiently or he said you know he said if I'd had it myself he said I could have done it with some modern equipment he said just like that but it had to go through the British military which is you know in these matters you know oh yeah another body you know um, and he said you know does anyone in Santa Barbara know of anyone that it might have been? And he, it was a long letter and it basically said this. And I immediately wrote to him and said, you know, I don't live very far from there because I, I wasn't living very far from there at the time. And, you know, I, and, and I put in my own thoughts about this type, who this person was, which I thought he probably was British. Um, and suffice it to say that I suspected because of what was the equipment with him, he might well have been a cartographer. Um, and, and that was a time when there was a lot of oil exploration and so mm -hmm. on and so forth. So I just took a nugget of that story and this young man in, San, you know, in Santa Barbara and, and I took it from there. And it's, I, I just gave him a, a gave, gave life to a, a character and, uh, and that's what I'm going to say about it. Except that just recently I've... Uh, I've been in contact with David again, and that he told me uh, they have laid the young man to rest in, in one of the battlefield cemeteries now. That's nice to hear. Yeah, yeah.
with a full funeral, you know, the whole lot. I've been speaking with Jacqueline Winspear. Her latest book is Among the Mad. Thank you for joining me, Jackie. Thank you very much. Thanks. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.